Hello and welcome to the Manifest Image. Here we look at art movements, their works, theory, and explore their relevance to artists of today. I'm Thomas Greengrass. And I'm Ariel de la Garza. This week, we have our second episode of our mini-series, Baseless Theories. The last one before the end of the summer, and everyone has to go back to work, and we have to start shoveling manifestos again. <laughs> Absolutely. And we've got an exciting one. Oscar Wilde. Did he foresee his own fall? Find out. <laughs> it's now Landish claim. Mm-hmm. It is. And you think, you know, but uh, you know, Nostradamus, Oscar Wilde, same guy, right? Sure. That's certain. So maybe a, a little intro into who Oscar Wilde is, mm-hmm. although everyone must know. Come on. So, Wilde, one of the most influential and beloved writers, little aside for me, uh, <laughs> wouldn't in any way be offended if I said that he is seen by many to be in every way the visible personification of an aesthete. They'd probably like that. Yeah. Uh, Irish born. He, I definitely didn't nick that from anywhere. Uh, not from him, certainly. Mm, there we go. <laughs> there we go. Thank you for explaining yeah, that joke no, because I, I, I did not know he said that. Any, anyway. Uh-huh. Uh, but I modified it a bit. Right. Uh, Irish born. He would learn to speak German and French. So he's definitely, you know, quite mm-hmm. the language. Uh, a linguist, rather. Uh, would read classics at Trinity College and become acquainted with many pre Raphaelites. That would lead into aestheticism and symbolism. Mm-hmm. He would then read The Greats, which was uh, at that point Roman and Greek history, rhetoric and philosophy at Oxford. He became very quickly known for his love of French literature and as being a fop and a dandy. So he decorated his room with peacock feathers, flowers and blue china. Fun fact also, because I I discovered this and I thought it was great. He goes back to Dublin later on and meets her childhood sweetheart, uh, who is by that point engaged to Bram Stoker. Yeah, that's that is a lot of fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was it, you said uh, like, would he dress up as Dracula? Or yeah, I did. I mean, I don't, yeah. I don't know. I tried to make some kind of a joke, and then yeah. it came out. But wouldn't it be strange if she dressed up as Dracula? No, that that makes sense. Yeah, that's the yeah. one. So Wilde, he quickly becomes known in artistic and literary circles. Mm-hmm. Publishes poems and writes for magazines, and has uh, you know several early attempts at playwriting and prose criticism in the. Uh, 1880s. Mm-hmm. As an artist and writer today, he's most fondly remembered for his ability to turn a phrase. In plays like The Importance of Being Earnest and uh, Lady Windermere's Fan, and also mm-hmm. for his novel The Picture of Dorian Gray, um, which was originally... The short stories also. Yeah. He was very well known for that. That's, 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 that's how, I, how I really know him. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, in, uh, but he's one of these people where he's probably as famous for his own life and bearing and story. So he was, you know, even in his age, he was seen as something of an exotic being, a flamboyant, scathing and uh, well-spoken raconteur. He was popular among high and low society for this. He lived lavishly, ate well and drank lots of champagne and absinthe. So that explains a lot. Mm-hmm. He was Good also... Uh, yeah, no, I mean, uh, the, where do you think the wit came from? Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was also a gay man or bisexual in a time where it was illegal to sleep with the same sex and had multiple relationships with men, and by the 1890s, many liaisons with rent boys. 
His most important relationship is with Lord Alfred Douglas, uh, who was affectionately known as Bosey, whilst junior and also the son of the Marquis of Queensbury, who didn't take the relationship uh, between Wilde and his son kindly. It was Bosey that would ultimately be the source of his greatest mm-hmm. joys and sorrows, mate. Mm. So how is it that he uh, uh, foresaw his own fall? Let's get to the Nostradamus. Yeah, it's so... interesting. Yeah, so uh, we're going to have to have a little mention about this trial, what happens here. Mm-hmm. So this trial yeah, takes place... Of course, place... the fall to know how he foresaw it, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So in early 1895, the Marquis of Queensbury leaves a note at uh, one of Wilde's clubs that he used to go to, you know, gentleman drinking establishment clubs. Mm-hmm. Thing. And, you know... Several times the Marquis has... He, he, he hates Wilde. Mm-hmm. He's like, I don't know what sort of relationship you've got with my son, but I'm pretty sure I know what it is. And he's no, not... It's probably, it's probably a very sad, very sad, very pointless man who had nothing better to do with his time. Well, uh, today he's probably yeah. best known in part for the Oscar Wilde trial, mm-hmm. uh, but also because he was a, a boxer and so he has Queensbury rules and that's, uh, that whole yeah. thing is named after him. He was also a raving atheist... Really? He was, yeah. Yeah. Um, but he leaves uh, this, this uh, card, which, uh, which he has on there, you know, for uh, Oscar Wilde posing sodomite. Mm-hmm. And now, Wilde doesn't take kindly to this at all. Mm-hmm. Bosey, even less so, and says, oh, this is outrageous. And, you know, this is his father who's doing this. And so he says to Wilde, you should, you should take him to court. This mm-hmm. is libelous. Now, all of Wilde's friends say, do not do this, mm-hmm. do not do this, just ignore it or go to France or something, you know, just carry on. And, and both saying, no, 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 do it, do it, do it. Mm-hmm. And Wilde ends up doing it. He, he takes this to court. And before it happens, you know, there's sensationalism, the newspapers get a hold of it. It's the talk of London. And even... London, a, a city with a lot to talk about, yeah. Yeah, well, no, this was sort of like one of the <laughs> sure. first of our, you know, modern celebrity scandals that you yeah. get in, you know, gossip magazines and that. And what do you get? Um, you, so there's a build-up to, to this first uh, libel case. And his friend, Oscar Wilde's friends are still saying, Oscar, it's not too late, mate. You can, you can go. You get, go to France. You've got friends there, you mm-hmm. know. You, you love all of those French symbolists. You go there, go there. He's like, no, 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 no. I'll fight this. I'll fight this. Of course, it does go to trial. And very, very quickly, they find that it isn't libelous because it's actually grounded with good reason mm-hmm. that actually Wilde has been having relationships with men. Mm-hmm. And it's tragic. Yeah, so, okay, the libel, libel trial fails against the uh, Marquis of Queensbury, but worse than that, because of the, this libel trial, and it's against the law to have these, uh, you know, what were then considered, you know, gross indecency with other men, mm-hmm. there was then issued a warrant for his arrest. And he could have, you know, again, left the country. He doesn't. He stays and fights it. Oscar Wilde's mum did also say, oh, stay and fight this. Sure. Um... And then, of course, it does go to trial. Yes, I mean, who, know, who, know, who, knows, who knows why he did that? I mean, it's an incredibly complicated thing, yeah. and I can, I can probably understand why someone would. So it's strange that, you know, you've got this whole thing going there. a kind of Socratic moment. It, it, it's strange that he sort of... But so how did he foresee this? Okay, so we mentioned plays like uh, The Importance of Being Earnest and Lady Windermere's Fan, um, but there's another play, uh, which is... Still fairly popular, but a little less known because it's a little bit political and mm. a little bit heavy. It's not. It's still got the same Wildian witticisms that you mm. expect. 
It's so called not levity, perhaps. No, it's not. It's a little bit heavier, mm. a little bit denser. It's you know an attack on uh, societies and that. It's and it's called an ideal husband. And he writes it uh, in sort of 1894, and it's sort of done by 1895. So this is months before, and roughly uh, parallel to this this note from the Marquis of Queensbury that sets this whole thing in motion. And that plot is all about blackmail mm. and uh, about corruption. And about scandal. Mm. And anyone who reads it, it's very unsettling how he seems to uh, almost have a premonition about the nature of scandal. And, uh, you know, at other points in his life, you, you've got this idea that he's almost like, well, there's no such thing as bad publicity. All of it's good. But in this work, he seems to suggest that, no, there definitely are problematic cases. So you've got characters like Lord Goring and Sir Robert Chilton. Sir Robert Chilton is the one who's being blackmailed, and Lord Goring is his friend. And Mrs. Cheveley is the blackmailer, mm-hmm. right? And so you've got uh, Lord Goring taking this quite lightly in his words, but seriously in his actions, because he wants to help his friend. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'll give you a little bit of a, a sign about the nature of scandal in this play. So Lord Goring says, Robert, you must fight her. You must fight skips ahead a little bit and says, I can't tell you how at present. I have not the faintest idea. But everyone has some weak point. There is some flaw in each of us. Carries on. Uh, now Sir Robert Chilton. Well, I shall send a cipher telegram to the embassy at Vienna to inquire if there is anything known against her. There may be some secret scandal that she might be afraid of. Lord Goring responds, Oh, I should fancy Mrs. Cheevey is one of those very modern women of our time who find a new scandal as becoming as a new bonnet, and air them both in the park every afternoon at 5.30. I'm sure she adores scandals, and that the sorrow of her life at present is that she can't manage to have enough of them. Mm-hmm. So there were some people who just, you know, lavished them. And you get this sense. But then you also have, and it's probably in Mrs. Cheveley, the blackmailer, who you get probably the most acute sense of scandal in that time. She's now talking to Sir Robert. My dear Sir Robert, what then? You are ruined. That is all. Remember to what point your puritanism in England has brought you. In old days, nobody pretended to be a bit better than his neighbours. In fact, to be a bit better than one's neighbours was considered excessively vulgar and middle class. Nowadays, with our modern mania for morality, everyone has to pose as a paragon of purity, incorruptibility, and the other seven deadly virtues. And what is the result? You all go over like nine pins, one after the other. Not a year passes in England without somebody disappearing. Scandals used to lend charm, or at least interest to a man. Now they crush him, and yours is a very nasty scandal. You couldn't survive it. This reminds me of, um, rather, it's a, it's a great illustration of... Um the kind of thing John Stuart Mill talks about when, I think it's in On Liberty or something, he talks about the utterly terrible, horrible, horrible influence of public opinion and how mm. one must be shielded from it because it is it is absolutely horrific. <laughs> and, you know, we can kind of understand that today. Mm. Um, I mean, tabloids are still terrible and most people's opinions are irrelevant and, is that and why we somewhat suffocating. Media? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're sort of <laughs> suffocating and pointless. But my God, it has absolutely nothing to do with the kind of suffocating hell that public opinion 
was like back in in that day in that sort of in that era so roughly in similar times so it's yeah so poisonous and terrible and it's always this figure of a person who has nothing other to nothing else to do but just sit around and ruin the lives of everyone else yeah Yeah. but don't you think that uh, the way that he handles it it's so it's so precise mm-hmm. that he says, uh, but it it makes sense. I mean, who knows how many of his friends had been mm. uh, had been tarred and feathered by public opinion, and yeah. the looming fear that he was next, in some sense, must have been around. I mean, he must have seen the lives of others completely ruined. Yeah, I mean, by this kind of scandal. It's interesting. About uh, uh, you know several months or a year before uh, the whole issue with the with the notes that Queensbury leaves. Always, um, it's always a note, by the way. It's, yeah. it's always an anonymous note or anonymous letter. And if you read uh, Stendhal or something, there's always some vitriolic little letter written in green ink. Because it's the evidence, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Well, but it's never evidence, right? It's always anonymous. Mm. And oh, well, it's he always a calling card. Oh, right. Put it right. On his well, card. For, for some people, but it's always it's almost always anonymous and and just enough. Mm. Right, just the mere allegation is enough to ruin a marriage, to destroy society. I know what you and did last summer. Exactly, that's enough, and that's that's all you need. And to this day, that kind of that precision of detail. Uh, uh, sorry, uh, I was going to say, yeah. Uh, so about a, a year, or, uh, or certainly several months before this, Queensbury, uh, the Marquis of Queensbury, goes to see uh, Oscar. And uh, they have, uh, you know, a little bit of a, a row, and he says, you know, I do not say it, uh, you know, I do not know it, but I will say it to you that, you know, that you're so-and-so. And Oscar Wilde more or less just said to him that, you know, he would fight as good as he got, mm. uh, give back as good as he got, and, and that he would fight him uh, with everything that he could. But I, I get the sense that within, uh, if you... Uh, you know, if you read the play or if you see an adaption of uh, or a production of An Ideal Husband, there are senses that you can fight scandal and they do try to get dirt on, on mm-hmm. Mrs. Cheveley and so that's how they're going to stop the blackmailer. They're going to blackmail the blackmailer. I think it's the nature of scandal as dis- described in uh, An Ideal Husband that the world has changed. Perhaps once upon a time they were very fun but today they crush them. Mm. They crush a person who they have. And... It's, it's very eerie. You know, anyone who's familiar with the trials and, and how, you know, he suffered through it mm. and, you know, and the, 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 the years of hard labor, you know, immortalized in mm-hmm. uh, the Ballad of Reading Jail and how it broke his health. And even after he was released, he never really, he never really comes back. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's, it's just so, it's, it's so weird. Yeah. It's an unsettling reading that you, you can't help see this uh, an ideal husband and go like, my God, he's talking about scandal here. And yeah. yet in a couple of months, he's, this, this whole thing is going to blow up in his face. And it makes me think, surely if, you're, if that's your mindset and you've had Mrs. Cheveley so accurately say that scandal, you know, you mm-hmm. can't survive scandals today. And you've written this. Who knows? That maybe that's goes, oh, maybe I shouldn't actually pursue this. But maybe that's something I don't know. It's difficult. I mean, maybe that's something he knew, or that was something an inability to think that would happen to him, or something like this. I don't know. Mm. I don't it's know. Like it's like he had a weird premonition. You can't help but feel it. Uh, so yeah, my, so my sort outrageous. A little bit of a premonition mixed in with some Socrates or something. I mean, your your premon- your there definitely your is outrageous your outrageous claims yes. are really outrageous. Yeah, Thomas. it's it's actually semi based in reality, which is. Which is a problem. We're going to have to take this back up to the Baseless Theories board. and I don't know. <laughs> It's a little too close. 
Yeah. Well, my claim that he's like uh, the next actually one... foresaw the fall is is okay. That one's that one's outrageous. But, the, but he nah. had some sort of weird sense of scandal, and that, that's it's, not outrageous it's, at all. That, that's, it's eerie how well, close it is. But that makes sense. I mean, dates. I mean, he he clearly yeah, it is eerie. I'll give yeah. you that. But um, uh, the next one is going to have to be significantly more outrageous mm. or mm. more baseless. And this one's quite based, which, which is good, good, good. Well, it, it, good, good for your standing as a literary Fine. critic. But I'll uh, make but, another but, one. But, the pigeons are artists. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, <laughs> they're very good. But no, uh, just one thing I'd like to say. We'll discuss it later on in, in other works when we come to symbolism, decadence, aestheticism. But it's interesting how you said that Socratic thing because there are transcriptions of the trial, and I do recommend listeners do check them out because they are fascinating. Because he he does have he essentially has an aesthetic defence. And he scuppers his own defence a lot of the time. In a legal sense, he doesn't put forward necessarily the best of cases at all points because he just puts forward these artistic arguments. And maybe that's not the right... You know, I don't know how mm-hmm. much time judges and juries and lawyers have for listening to, you know, uh, artistic theorising. I'm not sure that they're really mm. that interested in it. Um, but yeah, and so it's a bit like Socrates who puts forward a philosophical defence while puts forward an aesthetic one. Mm-hmm. But yeah... Next week, we will have an episode, if, if all goes well and neither of us get stranded on some cruise ship, mm. we will have an episode on Vicente Huidobro's creationism, the first, the first of, of many in a exploration of different kinds of artistic movements. Thank you very much.